Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. Before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We see the Beatles everywhere. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And heads up, Instagram is being a little bit wonky right now. We're trying to work on it, but we're not ignoring it. So definitely still give us a follow. And on that note, we have a couple of things to address from past episodes before we jump into a really fascinating conversation uh, with sociologist and scholar Candy Leonard about Beatles fandom. But uh, I wanted to bring up something that I was incorrect about on our very first episode. So my favorite thing that episode was the story of a girl in the 60s who went to visit George at his home, and she had visited the other Beatles as well. And it's a really cool story. Um, Listen to the episode if you haven't heard about it. But I uh, mistakenly gave her name as Leslie San Angelo, and I'm a moron because her name was Leslie Samuels. Now it's Leslie Healy, um, and she's from... San Angelo, Texas. So I don't know why I got that mixed up, but I wanted to clear that up. And the other thing we're going to address is In My Life. Yeah, I guess there is more controversy out there about who wrote In My Life than we assumed that there was. So we talked about it, I think last episode, there was a news item that some mathematicians had broken down and definitively solved who wrote In My Life based on an algorithm and a word jumble kind of thing. And we said, you know, why are they choosing this song? It's very obviously a John song. And, you know, some people, you know, let us know that we were wrong. And it's actually a really kind of controversial song that they've both taken credit for, among other compositions. I mean, there's nothing new for Lennon and McCartney. For me, I guess, it always just seemed blatantly John. I think that was our point. It's sort of like, to us, it was like very clear cut. It's a John song. Uh, Maybe Paul contributed a melody or the middle instrumental breakdown, but it just seemed so much like a John song. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think we were going more on instinct than on empirical research for that. But just the way the melody goes, the way the lyrics flow, the subject matter, the way love is approached in that song is much more the way John approaches love than the way Paul approaches love. So it seemed, at least to me, it seems very much like instinctually that must be John. But apparently there is a lot of disagreement out there, a lot more than we thought. So we are acknowledging that. Without going too deep into it, but you know, the original lyrics are in John's hand. That's not saying that they weren't sitting together writing it, but I think nine times out of ten whoever wrote it it's pretty much the main contributor we are acknowledging fair point that it's much contested this week in beatles history this is for past couple weeks one very sad anniversary to note was August 27th, 1967. Beloved Brian Epstein died in his mm. London townhome. I know. it's. Brian. I hate marking this every year. I know, Brian, my sweet baby. If you haven't noticed from previous episodes, Allison has a bit of a thing about Brian. I love Brian as well, but he is her baby. Brian is my favorite Beatle. Like, no comparison. He's not even a fifth Beatle. He's like the third Beatle. He's like the first Beatle for me. <laughs> like, I love Brian. He's. I love him more than any individual beetle i really do like i anyway why do you love brian so much so i have a master's degree in music business i don't know if anybody knows that or cares it's useless don't do it kids um (laughs) but i have a master's in that i worked in live music and i've worked all around the music industry for almost a decade 
And he was a major influence on me going to school and deciding to do that as a career path. So I don't know whether I should love or hate Brian, but it's because of him that I sort of got into that. And I just, I think he is just like so unsung until recently. I think now more people are getting to know Brian and his story. He's a real symbol for ambition and instinctual know-how and believing in yourself and trusting your vision. I think he brought so much good, you know, into the Beatles. And I don't know, we can talk about this and we will talk about this on a future episode, you know, whether they would have really succeeded or even left Liverpool without Brian and his drive. So yeah, August 27th, he died of a drug overdose. And there's, you know, some controversy, whether or not it was suicide or simply an overdose. I think the widely regarded, again, you could tweet at us if you disagree. But I think the most widely accepted version is that he died of an overdose of drugs that had built up in his system for a really long time. So it was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't a direct overdose that night. It was just over time. He just had too many barbiturates and uppers and downers in his body. I agree. I think that there's there's a chance that Brian clearly was suffering from depression and he had a lot of things going on at that time and he was heavily using drugs. There's a chance he could have had that intention at the time, but I would say that whether he did or not, it certainly wasn't planned out in advance of that night. I don't feel like he had that intention generally. He was he no. was working on projects. He was trying to build up you know, not only the Beatles, but Scylla Black and the other people in his stable. He was, you know, he was still very ambitious. Yeah. His father had just died, you know, right before he died. And he was so close to his mother that I don't think he would have, like, done that to her at all. And I know, you know, things happen in the moment, um, unfortunately. And when folks think about suicide and contemplate that. But I really don't think he would have left Queenie um, in that manner. And I think she was actually planning a visit to him on the weekend. Um, so he, he probably wouldn't have picked that time. And he didn't leave any papers or directives or anything to sort of like put an end cap on it. And Brian was very meticulous and organized. And I don't, I just don't think he would have committed suicide without considering these things. But we'll never really know, I suppose. No, either way... It's a very sad day because he left and he left the Beatles without a figurehead and a lot of things fell apart after he passed away. Yeah. This week actually marks another sort of pseudo anniversary, I guess. But on September 1st, the Beatles met at Paul's house to discuss how to move on without Brian and to discuss Magical Mystery Tour. And really the main takeaway from Brian's death is that Paul really saw it as a chance to move into that leadership role uh, within the Beatles, which we could talk about it in a future episode. I think it's worth discussing Paul's intentions, but I think he sort of started moving into that during the Sergeant Pepper um, recording sessions and, and that whole period. But this was really an opportunity for him to take the reins and he, and he did um, as much as he could. It's debatable whether or not that was even close to a good idea. That he yeah. Did that. Yeah. We'll have to discuss it. That would be interesting to talk about the post Brian Beatles. Cause you know, like you said, Erica, everything kind of fell apart. We will talk more about Brian very soon, but all I want to say is he was, he had so much courage and I don't think that that is celebrated enough to yeah. take this band that never left Liverpool and he had never been a manager and said, I'm going to make you bigger than Elvis. And he fucking did. He did. He lived his life the best he could. He did great things for the world. And R.I.P. Brian, thank you for everything. 
Yes, thank you, Brian. And like Erica said, we'll be talking more about Brian very soon because we can all cheer up because Brian's birthday is coming up and that's a much more happy occasion. Yes. And we'll be doing a whole episode dedicated to Brian. The Brian Sode. The Brian Sode. So stay tuned for that. Um, So another anniversary, the next day, one year later, August 28th, 1968, Hey Jude was released in the US. It was released on the 30th in the UK. And I think we all pretty much know the story of the genesis of this. Paul wrote it for Julian Lennon as his parents broke up and Yoko came into their lives. Um, And it was really cute. I saw that Julian tweeted um, on the anniversary day, you know, thanks Uncle Paul for the song. So cute. Very Um, cute. Even though the generally accepted theory is that the song's about Julian, there were a few other ideas about what the song was about. John thought that it was... Paul actually giving his relationship with Yoko his blessing. Mm, yeah, not likely there, John. No, it's, it's probably not true. Other rumors <laughs> say that maybe Paul wrote the song about himself as his engagement to Jane Asher was going downhill. I also don't think that. I mean, Paul hardly ever says the song is about this person in this event. He's very general about those kind of things. And he will tell seven different stories in seven different interviews, depending on how he feels at the time. (laughs) I do believe that if he actually had something in mind, it was for sure about Julian and seeing this fairly neglected child suffering over a very contentious and public divorce. And he was, yeah. he was being kind. And he did go visit, you know, Cynthia and Julian after it was announced. Even after John had moved out, he went out to Weybridge to their home and sat with them and saw them and played with Julian and made sure they were okay. I think uh, he never really went out to Weybridge uh, when John was living there. Like, he maybe went out there a handful of times. So this was a big, significant event. Paul was very close to Julian. For sure. I mean, he had known him literally since his birth. Very sweet. Very sweet that he wrote the song. Very sweet that all these years later, Julian still remembers that and remembers how much it meant. Hey Jude was also very significant because it was one of four first releases on Apple Records. They were released the same day. Of course, the B-side of Hey Jude was Revolution, John's song. Um, and of course, John thought that should be the A-side. Of course he did. John has a lot to say about Hey Jude. Um, not surprising. Yeah. Uh, but the other releases were Those Were the Days by Mary Hopkins. I love that song. I love it. Me too. Oh I my love gosh, her. so good. I love Mary Hopkins. We should talk She's... all about Mary Hopkins one day. Yes. Oh my God. We definitely should. Mary Hopkin episode. Uh, but I thought it was funny because Hey Jude. So when it was number one in the U S the song that superseded it on the charts was those were the days. So good job, Mary Hopkin. Good job, Apple. It wasn't a total shit show all the time. No, it started off with a bang. Yeah, it did. So, you know, we had those were the days, uh, sour milk, sea, Jackie Lomax, of course, mm-hmm. and thingamabob, which is that delightful little ditty. Uh, instrumental ditty from Paul uh, by the Black Dyke Mills Band, um, which is the weirdest thing. But uh, okay, Paul, we'll take it. One day we're going to have to do either an episode or at least a playlist of things that Paul McCartney wrote that he didn't record that most people don't know are by Paul McCartney. Yes. There's so many things out there. He was all over the place, especially at that time. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Thrillington, our first episode. And if you haven't heard that, definitely go back. Because Thrillington is just a whole trip. But that's a perfect example. Because that didn't come out until years later, you know, that was Paul. And it's super weird. Yeah, and it's super weird. And Percy Thrillington is very strange. And the whole thing is just bizarre and wonderful. And and the story is just, like, it'll blow your mind. It's so nuts. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's one of my favorite Um, Paul stories of all time. I know. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad we did that our first episode. Me too. Yeah. Um, so 
back to Hey Jude for a sec. So Paul, <laughs> when Paul first played the song for John, Paul sort of downplayed the line, the movement you need to on your shoulder. He said it reminded him of a parrot, <laughs> like a parrot being on your shoulder. Um, it's kind of However, right. John was like, no, Paul. It, it, he, yeah, he is right. Um, but John was like, no, Paul, you know, it's the best line in the song. So Paul kept it. And Paul has said that he gets emotional sometimes when he plays it live, when he hits that line, because he thinks of John telling him that's the best line in the song, Aww. which is so lovely. Unlike a lot of the Beatles tracks, this one was recorded at Trident uh, Studios because Abbey Road um, slash EMI at the time didn't have an eight track recorder. And that's what was required to make the magic of Hey Jude. That's so weird uh, to me because they had the Beatles. I feel like if you have the Beatles and it's 1968, you have everything you possibly could need to record a Beatles song. Like, you get things right. that nobody else has because you've got the Beatles and they might want it someday. Even if you have to get it just for them, it's kind of worth it. Because I don't know if, like, because EMI, you know, Pryor was recording a lot of classical and comedy records. I don't know if they would really need an 8-track. Um, although I, I would think for classical, you could probably use an 8-track. But, you know, maybe they were kind of new at the time. But definitely, it's like, hook, hook the Beatles up with whatever they want. If they want an 8-track, get them an 8-track. So uh, the recording of it is a really funny story. Hey Jude, uh, Ringo was apparently on a bathroom break at the very beginning, and he had impeccable timing. I just gave Ringo a compliment. Yeah, Ringo. Um, because he came in right on cue. Paul said he sort of like snuck behind his back and hit, then got behind the drums and started playing like right, right when he's supposed to. So good job, Ringo. That's part of his brilliance. I will just say that. Okay, so wait, part of his brilliance is that he came back into the studio right on time from our bathroom break to go into Hey Jude. Part of his brilliance is that he's so in tune with what was needed to be done that he was not paying attention, wasn't aware of what was happening, walked into the studio, saw what was happening, immediately hopped on his kit, and was perfectly in time. Hmm. Or is he just like lucky? He that's, got very lucky. That's very, very lucky. He is pretty much the luckiest man in the world. Oh. So, oh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, we can't. We can't let Ringo hate bleed into. I don't uh, hate Ringo. <laughs> all right. Let, let's let's just let's just get one thing straight here, though. When we use terms like hate on this Beatles podcast, we're still talking about Beatles. So, yeah. you know, we're not. We don't hate anything. We love these guys, and we love what they did. So, yeah. you know, you can add us all you want about it, but we don't hate in the same way that you might hate, like, you know, Nazis. Like, just just being clear about that. <laughs> I love that we're comparing and contrasting Nazis with Beatles. Um, well, you know, really once you're on the that. internet, every, everything devolves to Nazis on the internet. You know? Yeah, exactly right. No, exactly. So when we say hate, it's like, I like this one a little less than the others. Yeah, we all have Pretty a fourth favorite Beatle. Yeah, There's four and most them. people's is Ringo. Not everybody's. <laughs> <laughs> some people's mm -hmm. not yeah not everybody's we have a whole episode planned about that you will be shocked when you hear who erica's least favorite beetle is i was very surprised mm, not saying now anyway back to hey jude because we could just talk about ringo all day the background chorus that you hear in the track uh was actually the orchestra that was them kind of like making noise and and using their voices lending their voices 
Uh, they didn't want to play on the record because they were classically trained musicians. They thought it was way below them. And one of them was like, I'm not going to participate because, quote unquote, I'm not going to clap my hands and sing on Paul McCartney's bloody song. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, apparently Paul was like kind of an asshole to them as well because they weren't doing what he wanted them to do. So he just kind of got in their faces. And Well, they were kind of dicks about orchestras generally. Like when they had the orchestra come in for a day in the life, Paul made them all wear red noses. Right. He's trying to make it fun and irreverent, but he's kind of being a dick. Certainly demeaning, certainly saying, you know, you think you're so great, but here I am being your conductor and you're going to wear a rubber nose. So one of my, my favorite things about Hey Jude is a fun fact that when I was a kid, I noticed it and nobody, not even on the internet, was talking about it or even recognized it was there. But at 2.58 in the song, in the very long song, it's over seven minutes, you can hear someone say, fucking hell. And I knew it and it's been proven but different people sort of take claim to it or lay claim to it, um, and they attribute it to either John or Paul. I personally think it's John, and people, a lot of people think it's John. A few people think it's Paul, but you should definitely listen and judge for yourself. I think it's Oh um, Fuck. Oh Fuck. That's oh, how I hear fuck. it. Or maybe it's Oh Fucking Hell? I think it's Fucking Hell, and then you hear somebody go, Whoa, or something. Because what I heard was a rumor where John went to put on his headphones and it, they were turned up way too loud. So he heard it come through and he's like, fucking hell. And he's like, whoa. And he took them off. But I don't know. All I know is that when I sing along to Hey Jude, I always sing the, oh, fuck. Yes, exactly. You have to. But how do you sing along? Let us know on social media. How do you sing, oh, fuck, along to Hey Jude? We want to know. Yeah, this is really important, guys. Or so fucking please. hell. Let us know. Fucking hell. Oh, fuck. And yeah, we'll create a Twitter poll. It'll be great. I can't wait. Uh, wrapping up the little Hey Jude bursary. It's the big ones. It's the 50th. We can, you know, give it a little bit of time. But Hey Jude stayed on Britain's singles chart for 16 weeks. Hell, it was number one for two. And like we said, Mary Hopkins did take the number one spot after Hey Jude. Um, it, hey Jude is the longest, had the longest time spent uh, by any Beatles single at number one in the U.S. It was 19 weeks on the charts, nine at number one. Um, and it was also the longest playing single to reach number one, thanks to none other than MacArthur Park by Richard Harris. Also a great song. And it that clocked in also at over seven minutes. Hey Jude, nominated for three Grammys, didn't win any, which is horseshit. But the best praise might have come from none other than Mr. John Lennon, who called it one of McCartney's masterpieces. Happy anniversary, Hey Jude. Happy anniversary. Now, can I say something about Hey Jude? I suppose, I, as I say trep trepidatiously. I don't love this song. I don't. Oh, don't add us. Actually, add Erica. Don't add me. You can add me all you want, and it's not about the first half. It's about the second half. Making a song seven minutes long because you said na 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 for three and a half minutes does not make a seven-minute song. It makes a song that goes on and on and on when you play it, and it's honestly something that when it comes on in a in a playlist, sometimes I skip it, or at least I get rid of it after he's done with the verse because it's boring to me. So do you think it's gratuitous? I think they did it because they wanted to do a seven minute song. I think they did it because they could. And because they didn't have a musical solo. You know, it's it's not like, like not that I like this song, but I'm saying like Freebird is hella long because it's got this kick-ass guitar solo in the middle. 
But Hey Jude is super long because they're singing na 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 in the same tune over and over and over again at nauseum. It's nice. It's it, it feels good. I mean, anybody who's been to see Paul McCartney live or even goes to the Fest for Beals fans and sings Hey Jude with everybody at the end, it's great singing it in a group. But when I'm home, I don't want to hear all that. Like, it's not something that it doesn't interest my brain enough to keep listening to it once it gets to that part. So I don't know if anybody else feels that way. I know that it's it's seen as a masterpiece, and I know that this is an opinion that most people don't have. I would love to know if I'm the only one in the world who feels this way, though. It's interesting. I mean, I totally get what you're saying. I think that the na-na-nas at the end have little variations. Each time it sort of cycles around, I really enjoy those. But I see what you mean. I mean, it is a little long. I can't believe there wasn't a radio edit for it. Right? Yeah. I mean, only the Beatles. That's what I'm going to say. I mean, they did a radio edit of like, listen to what the man said. You know what I mean? Like, why didn't they do a radio edit of Hey Jude? Yeah. I mean, we could debate which song's better of those two, but um, I... Yeah. Someday. (laughs) Oh, I guess we should. (laughs) We'll do like, we'll do an episode of like weird song fights where we'll just pick two arbitrary songs and like rank them. That'd be fucking brilliant. Yes. That would be awesome. Um, no, I can see your point. I can see your point in Hey Jude. So not to say that the beginning isn't wonderful and it's it's heartfelt and it's emotional. I mean, I'll put it up there with Let It Be as one of Paul McCartney's both verse and music masterpieces. But For sure. That no, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I just, I can't get behind it. I'm sorry. But you're right. It is good live and it's fun when, you know, you're singing with people or, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, on record, it's a little bit like, okay, come on, let's go to the next one. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that, my singular opinion aside, happy anniversary to a beautiful song, and wherever you are, Julian, we're with you. Happy anniversary. Happy 50th. Hey, Julian. The past two weeks have generated a ton of Beatles news. The first that we're going to talk about is that Titan Comics is going to release... Yellow Submarine as a fully authorized by the Beatles graphic novel adaptation. So all of the weird stuff that happens in Yellow Submarine is going to happen in a comic book. And I think it's actually going to do really well in a comic book. It's it's a great story for that medium. I think Yellow Submarine was meant to be uh, a comic book. And I think it also answers some questions that maybe some viewers are still unclear about the plot. I mean, everybody, I think, has been there with Yellow Submarine at one point. So, and, and, you know, we had a very interesting conversation about Yellow Submarine in our second episode, the whole story behind it, and uh, Erica's first time seeing it. Yeah. So, if you haven't heard that, definitely go back and listen, because it's fascinating. Let me tell you, I will want to go back to this comic book, because some of the stuff in the movie, seeing it for the first time, was like, what? So, in the comic book, I can turn the page back and be like, oh, that's what's going on. Okay. Exactly. It's like a close notes. Yay, can't wait to read it. It's going to be cool. Next item, briefly, so last week we mentioned that uh, Mark David Chapman is up for parole. Denied again. No surprise there. Moving on. See you, asshole. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. In our next piece of news, Ed Sheeran is going to star in a new Beatles-inspired movie from Danny Boyle. Love Danny Boyle. His interpretation of Frankenstein was so good. Yes. And this is very exciting. So this movie is about an unknown singer-songwriter who is the only person in the world who remembers the Beatles. 
That's so crazy. Yeah. The premise. And in the movie, Ed Sheeran playing himself finds his character, the singer-songwriter, and brings him on tour and watches him turn into a star because he's playing the Beatles music that nobody but him has ever heard of. That's insane. Oh my God, I can't wait to see this. I don't know when it's actually starting to film or premiere, but keep an eye out for this. I can't even find a title yet. I think it's it's that new, but it's going to happen and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I think it was written by Richard Curtis too, which is even better. That's yes. going to be, it's going to be so cool. I know. Um, another thing that happened in the last couple of weeks, uh, and you know, we talk a lot about Paul these days because Paul obviously has a big, big thing coming out on Friday, which is his new album, Egypt Station. I don't know if our listeners caught the extended carpool karaoke with him and James Corden, of course, tooling around Liverpool. If you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend you watch it. It's very cute. Some uh, additional musical performances and some other sites. They did an extended um, sort of shot of the two of them at the Beatles statues. I just kept thinking if I were standing there at the statues and Paul walked around the corner, I really just might cry and fall on the ground. I'd probably faint, maybe have a heart attack. But I would uh, out. yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd be a living human being anymore. I might just be a ghost, uh, might spontaneously combust. These are all really valid options, but they uh, definitely surprise some people. And I hate those people. And that's not even like those people are my least favorite. I hate them. I'm so jealous. But mm. definitely check it out. It's just so nice to see Paul in Liverpool. Like, I will take anything. I know. Oh, I love it. You know, take him to the grocery store and I'll, I'll watch him, like, pick out a sandwich. I don't care. Just whatever he's doing, keep doing it. The next news item is that White Album celebrations are starting to crop up just a little bit. There was a very cryptic post on the socials last week. It was a white image that said, can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Save the date, September 26, 2018. Invitation to follow from Apple, Universal, and Capitol Records. Well, we do know when, but we don't know where this is going to be. Is this LA? Is this London? Yeah, no idea. Is this New York? Who's invited? Um, I'm saving that date. I hope somebody else is saving an invitation for me to go there, whatever it is. And I'm curious exactly what it is, because the anniversary of the White Album is actually November. I was thinking the same thing. They must be pre-gaming. I wonder if it's uh, maybe the release of what is probably going to be a remix or like a boxed um, edition similar to the Sgt. Pepper anniversary box set. It's possible. And if we could get even a teaser song from that, I'd love to hear it. If it's anything as good as the Sgt. Pepper remix was. (sighs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. I heard... um, Oh, you know what? I think it was at the fest. Jeff Emmerich was talking shit about the, uh, the Sgt. Pepper uh, oh remix box set from Giles Martin. But I lo- I mean, I know you and I feel the same way. It's amazing. I love it. It was like hearing it for the first time. It was like yes. that album was released today. It makes me cry. It's so good. I listened to that, I think, for like a straight month, just over and over. It was oh, just so beautiful. So if they do that with the White Album, that's going to be insane. I can't wait. And finally, more Paul news. Uh, Paul is posting some cryptic shit from New York City. Very close to where I live. I'm just saying, like, I saw it in the morning, freaked out. But I didn't see him. I didn't see him. Of course, by the time he posts that, he's gone, so. Right. Or maybe it could be his, you know, publicist or it could be his assistants. But let's, let's have the fantasy live in our minds that he was actually in Washington Square Park and Brooklyn Bridge Park and all these lovely spots around New York. He does have a couple of appearances coming up to promote Egypt Station. He's going to be in Howard Stern, I think, the day of uh, Jimmy Fallon. 
Um, and he just announced his first uh, run of U.S. tour dates. Yes, yeah, so far he's in the Carolinas, Kentucky, Wisconsin, and Illinois. So if you're in those areas, the pre-sale should be any day now, so good luck. Yeah, I think uh, the pre-sale is on the 4th, so Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, so good. Yeah, and there's a pre-sale code somewhere. Uh, if we it's Paul Freshen Up 1. Paul Freshen Up 1. There we go. There's your pre-sale code. Erica's on top of it. Yes, and if you need more information, go to paulmccartney.com. Just try and, try and do your best to be there. I'm hoping so hard that they fixed whatever was wrong with the ticketing problems oh, for the last round of, of tickets and that secondary market sellers aren't getting their hands on them and, and selling them for way more than their face value is this time. But, you know, do what yeah. you can. Be there as early as you can. Be on as many devices as you can if you want them. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yes. Ugh, that was such a shit show with the international dates. Ugh. Sucks so hard. So bad. One more exciting announcement for listeners of Because the Beatles. Erica and I, we teased it last episode, but we are officially starting the Beatles Book Club. Every month or two, we're going to pick a book well in advance if you want to get a copy of that book, you can read it along with us. And then we will do a separate mini-sode um, just discussing the book. And we can all have a fantastic conversation on social media about the book. I am excited to tap into books that I've had maybe sitting on my shelf for 10 years and haven't read. In addition to reading some new stuff. We're going to do old stuff. We're going to do new stuff. We're going to do controversial stuff. We're going to do popular stuff. So if you like reading about the Beatles, follow along with us. I think we're going to have some fun. Our first book is called Love Me Do, The Beatles' Progress by Michael Braun. This is an awesome... I'm so excited. Awesome book. Now, this book was written in 1964. It's of the minute, so it's a contemporary account of the Beatles. It was right when Beatlemania was beginning, and an American writer, Mike Braun, was with the Beatles to chronicle the events and watch this. And this book is very interesting because it does not sugarcoat who the Beatles were or how they acted or anything about their persona. It does not build on the persona. It's much more raw and honest account than you'll see in, in many biographies because it was so early. It was before there was a reason to sugarcoat anything. In these contemporary accounts, you get such a different perspective. Obviously, things get twisted as history progresses. And like Erica said, things get sugarcoated. But this is a real live view of them in real time. And I think the best recommendation of this book comes from John Lennon himself, who said, this is as close to a Beatles ride along as you'll get. A true book. He wrote how we were, which was bastards. <laughs> if, if that doesn't make you want to read it, I don't know what will. Oh my gosh. Can I get that tattooed on my butt. gravestone? On my butt? Yeah, yeah. there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Well, I think also, thank you, John, for that, uh, but also Mark Lewison, um, a.k.a. God himself, mm. has said it was maybe the best book ever written about the Beatles. So that's high praise. If you want to get it, it's fairly pricey in print, but it is only $8.99 as an ebook on Amazon. That's how we're reading it, so it's not, it's not too expensive. Definitely worth the investment, because it's not a book that a lot of people know about. Uh, I think... People who are real Beatles and Pichianatos swear by it, but um, I don't know. This will be my first time reading it. I'm really excited. Me too. It was out of print forever. So yeah, like Erica said, read along with us. Tweet us, Facebook, message us, whatever. Uh, email us. Uh, let us know if you're reading it. Let us know what you think. Um, you know, if you send us your comments, we'll probably read some on the mini-sode. And we'll have a nice little chat about this really awesome book. 
every episode we'll remind you and in a week or two we'll set an actual date and then we can all come together yay i'm so excited me too Today we're going to talk about one of our favorite subjects, which is the Mm -hmm. Beatles fandom. We have, as our special guest today, Candy Leonard, who wrote the book Beatleness. It came out in 2014, which is one of the most comprehensive firsthand accounts of what it was like to be a fan. Candy's a sociologist, and she also looks at the fandom from a sociological perspective. Before we start, we just wanted to talk a little bit about what the fandom means to us and why we focus on it so much. Erica and I, we've probably mentioned it before, and we'll talk about it again with Candy in a little bit, but we are second generation fans, third generation fans. Um, I'm a little bit on the fence, but again, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but while the core parts of fandom across the generations, whether you were there when the Beatles hit America and were on the charts, or you learned about them from the internet or Spotify, there are some similarities. Um, you know, first generation fan would be considered somebody who was there um, in the days, was sort of a contemporary fan in the 60s, in that sort of decade span when the Beatles were actually active. Second generation we're, again, we'll talk about what really classifies that or what doesn't, but generally, second-generation fan is sort of those folks, their kids or people who came afterwards in the 70s, 80s. Uh, and third-generation fans are starting to emerge now as the younger kids get involved in the Beatles community and, and get turned on to their music. Um, but what's important, um, regardless of what generation you are, what generation you consider yourself to be, um, is that no one generation's experience is more important than the other. And that's a key thing to remember. Um, you know, obviously, first generation fans' perspectives and their accounts are very valuable. But if, even if you discovered the Beatles on Spotify, that's really important. And you should celebrate that. Yeah, because the Beatles wouldn't be the phenomenon they are without the fans very little endures at this level for 50 years. And the only reason that it does is because people keep coming to it and people keep discovering and rediscovering it and loving it as much as they did 50, 55 years ago. Allison and I have moderated some panels at the Fest for Beatles fans. We've written articles and we generally advocate to empower these second and third generation fans to tell their stories and to feel valued in the fandom community. This past August, well, last month, at the Fest for Beatles fans in Chicago, there was a really good dialogue between second-generation fans and first-generation fans, where the first-generation fans were actually really interested in our perspective and the fact that we didn't have the things that they had and our reaction to those things. So it's a really interesting dialogue and something that is, again, very unique to the Beatles and that the fandom is so complex, hence why we're talking about it today. It ranges from casual Beatles fans to people who are obsessed as obsessed with that as any Comic-Con fan would be obsessed with Harry Potter or Game of Thrones. It's a huge spectrum and it's so much fun if you really dive into it. And some fans, as we'll find out in a second from Candy, are taking their fandom from the Beatles a step further and creating something like religion, which is odd and wonderful and weirdly makes sense uh, to me. Mm Yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second, which is going to be amazing. Candy is currently researching that bit of the phenomenon.
Our special guest today is Candy Leonard. Candy is a sociologist, a scholar, and a first-gen Beatles fan, and the author of Beatleness, How the Beatles and Their Fans Remade the World, a book that I have loved since it came out, which tells the story of the Beatles and their impact on America from the fans' perspective. The story documents the experience of both male and female fans that are born between 1947 and 1961, and it shows how they changed everything. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You guys are doing a great job. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book that looked at the Beatles fandom in this way. I had noticed that there were no books about the fans, and it was a story that had to be told. I mean, I wanted to validate the experience of people of my generation who grew up with the Beatles as a constant presence in our lives for six years. I believe that that experience really is an important part of American history, and it's certainly an important part of the experience of millions of baby boomers. So over the course of my life, I've gotten into conversations with so many people about the Beatles and how great they were and how they changed my life and all this. And as I went through school, I was learning all these different theories about social change and gender and media and all this stuff, and I kept relating it back to the Beatles. You're a first-generation fan, and you interviewed other first-gen fans for the book. Were you surprised by your findings? How did they differ from your own experience as a first-gen fan? When you say first-gen fan, you're talking about a 15- to 18-year age range, which is really quite interesting when you think about it, because the experiences are going to be very different. But So I kind of divided it into younger, middle, and older, but I think the younger fans were the most infected because they were younger and they were more of a constant presence in their lives when they were younger and more impressionable in their more formative years. It was very empowering because, well, this is true, I think, of all ages, but perhaps particularly for for maybe the younger ones, is that it allowed you to be part of a cultural conversation that was happening. And, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book was really capture what high Beatlemania was like. And, you know, if you were a little older, if you were a teenager, let's say, you already maybe were listening to music, maybe you already had a transistor radio And so the Beatles were now a new kind of pop music for you, whereas if you were younger, it was like your first entree into the world of pop music, which, of course, also gave you entree into the world of teenagers and all this because you were hearing these songs that some of the fans refer to as little stories. It kind of brought you into that bigger conversation. I mean, no matter how old you were, there was a way to become engaged with this thing that was happening. And if you were younger and and you liked the Beatles, the big kids let you hang out with them. So again, it was this, these mixed age groups. And so this resulted in, in a lot of younger fans kind of growing up a little faster than they might have. I mean, that came through a lot, actually. I mean, I know that was my experience, but it was confirmed for me, especially with women, and also about girls kind of being shut out from playing music, that it was kind of reserved for boys. I mean, again, that was my experience. It was confirmed for me for other women that I spoke to. So so that's what surprised me. The depth of feeling that lingers after all this time continues to amaze me, how people feel blessed, you know, having grown up at that time, whether you were 
like me going from age seven to age 14, or whether you were 14 and moving through to age 21, or if you were 18 and went to age 25. In other words, that six, seven year period where they were active in our lives were periods of great, um, you know, they're important years of, of development for kids and, and adolescents. So mm -hmm. it's always looked back on as an essential formative experience of their lives. We always talk about the Beatles and how they changed the world and how they changed music on a very macro level. But your book talks about it on the micro level, what happened the next day after school, what happened with big brothers and their little siblings. It's just so fascinating to really see that level of real change that this brought about in actual people growing up during the time. What do you think makes the Beatles fandom so unique? I mean, people screamed for Elvis, people screamed for Frank, but what makes the Beatles different? There are four of them. So right off the bat, they're four times more interesting. And of course, there's picking the favorite, comparing and contrasting. So, you know, there are richer, denser stimulus just before they even open their mouths or play a note. And then, of course, the media environment was very different. Television was pretty much present in every household by the time the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, which was not the case eight years before when Elvis appeared on Ed Sullivan. The scale of it, you know, the size of, of the baby boom generation. Again, I mean, they had the Beatles had the largest potential fan base of any performer up to that point. The whole scale of it, the prevalence of transistor radios, the marketing that was used, which some of it was modeled on what was done for Elvis, but of course they took it beyond that. Of course, we know they made some mistakes, maybe it could have even been bigger than it was. But so every, the scale of every piece of it was just bigger and different. And of course, them. I mean, the fact that you had these four young men who found each other in that way, coming from this place, and the amazing serendipity that permeates the early story. There are aspects of it that are similar to other fandoms, certainly, but they themselves and the culture at the time, the media environment, was very, very different. And of course, now looking back on it, the longevity of it, there is something about the fact that this has gone on for half a century, three generations, across cultures, across language. It's just extraordinary. For us, as a second-generation fan, I, I guess I would consider myself, I discovered them when I was 14, so it's kind of now become like a lifelong formative experience, which is crazy. What? I'm currently rereading and reading Mark Lewison's Tune In, the UK extended version for the first time, which is just blowing my mind. But I love that he uses the phrase, like every once in a while, there there comes an ultimate. And the Beatles were an ultimate. Like you say, it's like right place, right time for all these things. And I sort of feel like the Beatles fandom is an ultimate. There are certainly some like it, but none that sort of span across the generations with such fervor. Like, you know, I see now um, 12 year olds, 13 year olds getting obsessed with the Beatles and just hungry for the Beatles, you know? And I remember when I was young and I just wanted more Beatles. And, you know, when my parents were young, probably their, their friends and wanted more Beatles. And so it goes back and it's just so interesting. It was a confluence of forces in the culture at that time that just made it possible for it to happen the way it did. You know, the demographics, the technology, the relative affluence after the war. I mean, there's so many factors. And, of course, the stirrings of 
youth discontent and rebellion here with the Beats and in the UK, the angry young men. And so they kind of fell onto this landscape that was very fertile for them to become who they became and also to captivate us in the way that they did. Can you describe and define what you mean by beetleness? I know you use it in a unique way throughout the book, and I love it. You look at a picture of them. What is it about it that is so compelling? And you can say, oh, it's the hair, it's the suits, it's the this, it's the that. No, it's the beetleness. In other words, it's this essence that they put forth. It's this vibe. So that's one aspect of it. And then it's the feeling that you have, you know, it's like feeling the beetleness. So the moments in the music, for example, that just feel so loaded with beetleness. So, and it varies for different people. So, for some people, it might be the cowbell on uh, a hard day's night. For somebody else, it might be the hand clapping on Obladi Oblada. Whatever it might be, there's these moments of pure beetleness that just inspire a feeling that really kind of defies description. The other meaning, which I tend to use probably more often than the other two, is is seeing it out in the world, you know, the beetleness that's out in the world. So you go into a, a party supply store, you know, and there's oh, a 60s themed birthday party and all the, and the plates say give peace a chance or it's like evidence out in the world that they existed, separate and apart from the music. It's everywhere, you know, so it's clever headlines. I, I, John Stewart used to do this a lot, you know, these kind of Beatle references in headlines and um, advertising and this Beatle-informed culture. A lot of this, I think, has to do with the fact that first-generation fans, many of them, you know, we're, we're now old and retiring, but many were inspired to go into professions that involved communication and visual representation. So we helped the culture become infused with beetleness because of that. And then, of course, we transmitted to our kids and grandkids. I swear not a day goes by where I'm not, you know, where I, I notice something that's like a beetle reference out in the world. You know, this phenomenon needed its own word. It's everywhere. You know, you walk into a restaurant or bar, you know, and there are pictures hanging up and there's going to be a picture of the Beatles. You know, I mean, they're just they're just everywhere. You know, it's the Beatleness that surrounds us. Allison and I discussed something very similar, but we talk about the second and third generation fan experience. And one thing we'd love to talk about today is some of the things that we found in our experience and how they differ from the first generation fan experience. Just to define what we mean by these terms, we mean the first generation are people who experience the Beatles music in real time. So, you know, just as Candy said, if they were old enough to be conscious during Ed Sullivan, you're a first generation fan. Then the second and third generation are more the people who were the children and now even the grandchildren of the people who experienced the Beatles. I consider myself solidly a second-generation fan because I started being very interested in them in the mid-80s, but I feel like people who are younger than me, and I think Allison feels like she's on the cusp of this, we consider the third generation, maybe not so much the children of the second generation all the time, but the people who experienced it primarily through the internet. I think that's totally true because for me, my experience, and I've spoken about it 
a hundred times. I was raised primarily with my mother, my father died when I was young, and she wasn't really uh, like a fan. She didn't like the Beatles, in fact, and she was old enough. She was in her 20s in the 60s, which was so frustrating. I can't talk about it. I need to save it for my therapist. Um, but she said so she wasn't interested in them at all. So I'm sort of confused. I don't know if I'm a second gen. I mean, if you consider I'm like, it's like the first in your family to go to college. Like, I'm the first Beatles fan in my family. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a second or third. I definitely so came up with the Beatles. Was, I'm sorry. Your mom was, if I'm hearing you, it's like she was older than than even the oldest fan, it sounds like you're saying. She right? was. So she graduated high school in 1961. And I would ask her, you know, did you watch the Beatles in its Sullivan? And she'd say, I probably did. We watched it every Sunday. But she never, <laughs> she didn't remember. No, was she an Elvis fan? She was not. She did not like Elvis. She liked like Frankie Avalon and she liked Bobby Rydell a lot. She liked the Letterman, but no, she never really liked the teen idols at the time. Age wise, you're probably, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm guessing age wise, you're probably second generation. But what you're describing, you know, it's interesting because you, you didn't, you didn't get it at home. You had to go no. where to find it. <laughs> And um, it's interesting how there are these sort of different ways of how you were introduced to them and, and how you became a fan. It sounds like you guys are looking at this a lot, this second, third. And so how do you define it? I sort of leave it up to the fan. Chronologically, I might be a second. I might be a third because of the way I discovered them. And I might be a first because I'm the first one. But I sort of feel like I'm on the cusp of like second and third. It has to do with how you consume the Beatles, I think, in some ways. Once you've gotten out of the age range where you were actually there. For me, I grew up very traditional second generation Beatles fan. My dad was obsessed with them. He was obsessed with music. He was like a college DJ. And, you know, he had all this stuff from when he was younger. And I just took it out and learned from his original materials. But I feel like if maybe I had gotten into them 10 years later, maybe I would have found message boards and I would have found live journal and things like that. So it would have been different. Once the internet became a thing, that was all there. But you were a fan before that, where it sounds like in Allison's case, it was more relying on the internet or, you know, in other words, these sort of secondary sources. Allison, you said you were 14, right? When you got into them? Actually, I was 13. My way to the Beatles was very convoluted. I was a Monkees fan first, and then I hated the Beatles because I thought I couldn't like both, as one does. And then I became a Beatles fan in 2000 because my eighth grade teacher was playing the Yellow Submarine song track, which we talk more about in episode two. So it was sort of symptomatic at the time because I'd already been sort of a Monkees fan on the internet. And so when I became a Beatles fan, it was just sort of like logical for me to like build a Beatles fan site and find Beatles communities and build a live journal and join like Yahoo groups. When I first started doing research, this was like in 99, 2000, I was shocked at all these young women mostly, but boys too, who were doing these Beatles sites, building these incredible sites. And, you know, and it was sort of harder to do then. It was kind of newer. And, and I remember thinking, this is incredible that these young people were so obsessed with the Beatles. It pleased me and shocked me. <laughs> yeah. You talk to anybody from those days, myself included. I still think of it as the glory days of the internet because it was so early and we really didn't have much. We didn't have Wikipedia. We didn't have YouTube. So it was more about like swapping clips, building these fan sites. I mean, I had all mine in like Angel Fire. Um, called, it was like a ring where you had like... Oh yeah, web rings. I engaged with some of them and I remember they would talk about how they were teased by friends and, and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, 
They would talk about, you know, decorating their lockers, you know, and Beatles stuff. And also playing with the imagery, bricolage, you know, it's like putting these different images together from different eras. One of the big differences, obviously, is that for subsequent generations, it's not linear anymore. So having the pictures from different eras or songs from different eras all mixed together, and it made perfect sense. It didn't have the chronology anymore. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest differences is that we got this entire catalog, this entire history, all of these things, whenever we wanted it, we got to experience them in whatever order we wanted. Including the solo music. Too. Yeah. On one hand, it's interesting and it's fun because we were always able to mix and match and pick out our favorites. But on the other hand, we never had that sense of anticipation. We did not have that feeling of listening to Tomorrow Never Knows and being either repulsed by it or diving into this new feeling and this new sound. It was just, it was there and Love Me Do might play right after it in our playlist and Let It Be might play right before it. That feeling of anticipation is something that Fans talk about this all the time. It's like there was no no other feeling like it, and there was nothing else in our lives as interesting or as compelling or as enriching as them. Now I don't know if that could be said today anymore, but we're talking about three networks. The world was a really really different place. There was nothing going on in our lives that was as interesting or as compelling that demanded and grabbed our attention and that we used as a way of, you know, you connected with people. It just brought so much joy and so much energy. But the anticipation of the next installment, as it were, was just a very important piece of it. When I was growing up, I sort of had a similar thing, maybe not in the order of the albums, but I remember having to like schlep to the next town over to go to Best Buy to buy another Beatles CD and then play that one forever until my mother finally was like, all right, I'll buy you the next one. They were in order, but I was still like discovering them CD by CD. What I think is more interesting is younger people today discovering them and they just go on Spotify and they have the whole catalog and they could just literally, like Erica said, go from like, love me do to let it be. This gets into, of course, the whole way music in general is listened to differently now, you know, which is a whole big other conversation. One thing that we did to compensate as second and third generation fans is that many of us have a really great affinity for some of the Beatles solo work or certain solo albums. I like Flowers of the Dirt, Paul McCartney's 1989 album, probably much more than I should objectively, because I associate that with the world tour and being a kid and being so excited that I got this piece of the Beatles to experience live and buying tickets and going to special events. That was the first experience of Beatlemania that I actually had that was tangible and that wasn't on a TV screen or in a book. When I meet people who are my age, I feel like we really have this in-depth knowledge of some of the solo stuff that, for example, my dad has no idea about. I know that a lot of, you know, second, third generation fans, the solo stuff is, they don't make that distinction as much as first generation fans do. Actually, as you're talking, Erica, I'm like, maybe this explains why I will defend Driving Rain so hard, because that was the first time I saw McCartney. It was on that tour. I bet it is. We, the younger, the subsequent generations, I think, have a really strange and cool perspective on the whole story arc of the Beatles and their solo catalog. So we hear stuff on, you know, George's solo album. We're like, oh, we could trace that back to the stuff he wrote for the White Album. And, uh, you know, our perspective also has some good and some bad sides. 
for example, take Yoko in context and make a maybe a more informed decision about her role in everything, not just the breakup, but her role in influencing John through later in his life, you know, to the end of his life even. Right, because it doesn't have any emotional, she doesn't have emotional resonance for you as she does with a lot of, not me personally, but she does with a lot of first generation fans. Right, but don't even get me started on Heather Mills. Oh, right. (laughs) I think she's more objectionable than Yoko. Oh, for sure. Some younger people take up the cross with Yoko. I certainly think I did when I was younger, just because I felt like, oh, you have to hate Yoko. But as as I got older and made more informed decisions and also became interested in her as an artist and her her as a feminist and all these different elements, I got you know more respect for her. And I actually really like Yoko now. I certainly can speak for myself. I don't think I have that residual anger or hatred towards her for the Beatles breakup. I don't believe she I mean, anybody really played who, a significant role. Who holds that position, regardless of what generation they're in, is just frankly ignorant of the facts. Why is she blamed any more than uh, Linda or the editors at Red Mole or IT? You know what I mean? Like, in other words, he was being pulled in all kinds of directions. And when people go into the whole Yoko broke up the Beatles, I tell people go back and read the Look magazine interview from December '66, and it's pretty clear he wanted out. Mm-hmm. What's funny, you know, as somebody who's been observing this for 50 years, it's like I go on these Facebook groups and I see people are still talking about the Paul is dead thing. And, oh my god, <laughs> it's yeah. crazy! And, I, and like, part of me is like, oh, give me a break, you know. But there's another part of me that thinks this is really fascinating because once you jump into that rabbit hole of Beatles fandom, however old you, you know, these younger people, you eventually discovered this whole crazy Paul is dead thing. And it's still intriguing to people, which is kind of cool in a way. The first article we've ever published on Rebeat, this is July 2014, was about Paul is dead. It's still our number one article. It's still our most popular article and people comment on it every single day. They get into some serious fights on that article. People present evidence, they fight with each other on the comments. It's pretty, it's intense. I think we're learning that Americans enjoy a good conspiracy theory. But, you know, as far as the story of Beatles fandom and the phenomenon of the Beatles, it's an interesting little hook that people still kind of like to think about and play with. It's very interesting being of this generation, looking back and figuring out how that happened and where they found the clues and how people communicated about it. So I think part of the interest in the whole hoax is just the process of the hoax, how it developed. My explanation that I talk about in the book is that I think that the Beatles' output was such a rich, dense, textured stimulus that there was room for finding these things. I think it speaks to the creativity and the energy of the fans rather than anything the Beatles did. Oh, sure. And that goes right back to what I love about your book, which is the microcosm aspect of what the Beatles did to society and to groups of friends. And Paul is Dead is large-scale manifestation of groups of friends all over the English-speaking world finding these clues and spreading them around and making something huge. A lot of things about the Beatles are an example of things going viral before there was an internet. But a lot of the Beatle news that we got was just kind of word of mouth. Even by 69, I mean, they were still just a focal point of conversation. One thing that comes to mind, and one thing that when we did the panel at the Fest for Beatles fans in Chicago, I had some first-gen fans come up to me afterwards and say, oh, you know, it's so interesting to hear 
you talk about not knowing a time when John was alive. I remember George very well passing away and that being a really sad time. But I also had younger fans come up to me after that panel and say, I don't remember when George died. And I was sort of like a little taken aback by that. But I thought it was very interesting, you know, these sort of generational things. You know, Erica and I have never known a complete Beatles. And you had to get hit with that very early because you start out usually as a kid, you hear early Beatles, maybe you see A Hard Day's Night or some of the early concerts. And I remember asking my dad about what are they doing now? Are they on tour? Can we see them? So, you know, you're a very young kid and you're all of a sudden hit with some horrible horrific tragedy that's probably worse than almost anything you've ever heard about in your life if you're young. I remember with my grandson, you know, introducing him to the Beatles, which was and remains a a lot of fun. I mean, George, obviously it's sad in both cases, but, you know, when somebody dies of natural causes, it's a different thing. Explaining John, it's kind of shocking, which actually raises a question that I have for you about from your perspective as second generation fans, you know, one of the big things for us was the, you know, there was the politics was a very um, vivid backdrop to all of this. And it wasn't even a backdrop. It was intertwined with it, really. And so what I wonder about is, does the music have political resonance for you in the way that it did for us? I I think that's one of those things, at least for me, where it did, but more in context of the solo stuff. I'll go back to that Flowers in the Dirt tour. It was sponsored by Friends of the Earth. It was very intertwined with environmental causes, vegetarianism. And that was the first time I was ever exposed to those kind of things. And, you know, I got very interested in animal rights because I saw Paul McCartney doing this and having this lifestyle and Linda McCartney making these cookbooks. I don't think I would have been exposed to those issues on a political level in my day-to-day life. For that kind of thing, yes, the earliest memory I have of Revolution, it was a commercial, I think, for Nike. Yeah. So it was really degraded from its its original meaning. It was so far away from that. It's more of either a historical thing when I'm thinking about the history of the Vietnam War and the kind of conflict that was going on when he wrote that, or if you hear it in a contemporary context like the anti-Trump resistance or something like that. This is something that I think is very unique to second, third generation fans. We can see it through the lens of the 60s as an overall picture. So in the 60s, you know, through the years has become sort of a disney generation. So it's sort of like the flower power and the caricaturized hippies and that kind of thing. And so I think a lot of that is sort of chalked up to, oh, that was the time, that was the 60s, you know, peace and love, like revolution, like, you know, the kind of rhetoric that goes along with that sort of stereotypical. I agree with Erica. I think my first contemporary touch point is Paul's vegetarianism, animal rights. I certainly tried to become vegetarian for a hot minute. I bought Linda's cookbooks did not last. It's so uh, hard. Her, her recipes I, are so good, but they're so hard. I don't know. I, I Unpopular opinion. I tried to bake one of her pies once and it was awful. I, I'm sorry, Linda. It was just bad. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, but going back to the political, political aspect, I mean, I, you know, I don't even think I ever thought about it really. I just sort of, um, I just sort of saw it as, oh, it's 60s music. It's 60s themes. It's mm-hmm. 60s issues. It wasn't until I got older that I could recognize and pinpoint like different things. Um, There's an interesting question that came up. I believe it was on one of the panels in Chicago that I was on. And we were talking about the White Album. And some of the first gen fans on the panel asked 
second gen fans are on the panel. Do you even know who Chairman Mao is? Does that have resonance with you? Do you understand what they were saying with that reference? And for me, it's like, yeah. And if you don't know, you go and look it up. They have a whole internet to explore. Well, when I was talking to young fans, one of the things that I found was that their interest in the Beatles sparked an, an interest in the history of the 60s and what happened and wanting to learn more about it. Is that still the case or not really? We need to recruit like a 17-year-old to come on here because I'm so curious about their experience and if they've started you know, researching and Googling the, the 60s as a decade and as a time. But I can speak from a musical standpoint, whereas the Beatles... They opened a whole giant floodgate of, you know, me being interested in all the British Invasion artists, you know, like the Dave Clark Five, Herman's Hermits, mm-hmm. Jerry and the Pacemakers, you know, on through, you know, Brian's stable of artists and, you know, the Kinks and that kind of thing. Um, it made me want to know more about that and know more about Liverpool and London. And, you know, I'm a big history nerd anyway, so I love learning about the 60s and, and just history in general. And so I think that is one way the Beatles really impact across the generations is influencing people of all ages to to discover music like that. It keeps history alive in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that in 1960, people were still thinking about what happened in 1910 the way right. we're still thinking about what happened 50 years ago. Or even just the idea of like listening to your parents' music. As time goes by, we have a lot of differences and similarities between the generations. But I think one thing that the Beatles have sort of showed us, and you know, got to take your hat off to Paul and Ringo for this one, is because they're both in their 70s, they're still out there, they're still rocking, and they're still making music. They are setting a new precedent for what it means to age in general, which is fascinating. And it's something that as we sort of reach those aging milestones, it's something that we can point to and say, okay, well, we don't have to like stop living our lives because we hit a certain number. You know, Paul McCartney is touring at the age of 76. It's crazy. I was thinking about this too, because one of the things that I, you know, I always say, well, you know, we had never seen people that looked like them, you know, in other words, they presented in a whole new way. And that was always true. And in some sense is still true. And also that they gave other people permission to express themselves and be who they are, regardless of whatever. So, you know, like now, like as a, as a 62 year old woman, you know, it's like, I don't, what does that even mean? You know, like I still in my head, feel young. They're still modeling ways to be that we never saw people who looked like that. One thing about Paul McCartney is just his energy is overwhelming. When I was growing up, I feel like there was a sense of, you know, when you become 65, you retire and you have grandchildren. You know, very much Paul's version of it in When I'm 64. Exactly, yeah. He just kept passing those ages and it never dawned on him that he should actually be in a rocking chair. Just like from the very beginning, they rejected the frames that people had about how things are, how the world should be, how people must behave, how you perceive things. And they present other ways of being in the world. I mean, that was a thing that fans always said. And so it's kind of still true. Well, one of my favorite songs that he's ever, Paul has ever written is Sing the Changes, which is from Electric Arguments from 2009, Mm -hmm. I think. The thesis is, you know, you need to have a sense of childlike wonder. You know, if he's still talking about that at 68 years old or whatever age he was then, damn, if I'm going to feel old, that gives me inspiration that I can do what I need, anything that I want to do, no matter what age I get to. I feel like that's one of the things that I 
personally got from them, and I think a lot of people in my generation did, is this sense of playfulness. Why are we here? Surely not to live in pain and fear. It's also a very healthy way to live as well. So Candy, I want to go back a moment to talking about the first generation fan experience. Erica and I both experienced at different times in our lives a little bit of tension between the generations where first generation fans, where their experience, no question about it, super valuable. You know, they're the only people in history who will ever experience the Beatles real time. But I'm curious to know if you as a first generation fan or any of the first generation fans you've met have sort of, I don't know, they sort of look down on second or third generation fans or think they're maybe not as much of fans because they weren't there. I've heard second and third generation fans say that. I don't really understand it. I mean, you know, as somebody who feels as I do about the Beatles, I'm just thrilled that it's continuing. So why would I have any resentment or negative feelings. I, I remember when I, when I went to Liverpool Beatles week, I got into a conversation with these two young men and you know, they, they were so awed by the fact that I was there and I was telling them about this. And, and I think they were high, but they got very excited about when I was telling them about my memories of Ed <laughs> Sullivan. So, I mean, I think that first generation fans, sometimes it, it's possible that what happens is that because younger fans you know, want to talk to them, that they get a little, I don't know, like attitude about, oh, I have this like special knowledge or something, you know. But again, I mean, people are born when they're born. I mean, when my my other grandson, who's four, just had a yellow submarine themed birthday party. I'm just thrilled. I mean, I feel like, you know, my work is done as a grand, like every time that my grandsons go out in the world, and see the Beatles, like, they'll always think of me forever, you know, like, I'll be long gone, and that will still happen. So, I mean, any first-generation fan who gives attitude to a younger fan is just a jerk. (laughs) Amen. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know, is it that they feel that that the younger fans are naive, or that they don't really know the truth, or or it's like, what is the issue? Yeah, I think this feeling of how could you possibly have anything of value to say about this you were not there and I think there's also this feeling I certainly feel like a much younger person in the Beatles band community than I do in any other part of my life I always kind of have that feeling of being you know around 16 when I'm in the Beatles community regardless of how old you actually are when you're around Beatles fans or even like you know quote-unquote classic rock or legacy act you know, artists or fans, you know, you hear the same damn thing all the time, which is, how do you know this music? You're too young. And it makes me crazy because I've heard it when I, like Erica said, when I'm 16 and when I'm 30, it's, it never goes away. I think the advantage as far as like scholarship, people who are not there are perhaps able to write about them with a little bit more objectivity. If there's a little bit of a distance that maybe makes it clearer in some ways. This phenomenon is not going anywhere. Interest in them is never going to stop. So it's going to continue to evolve. But I, I think that, you know, the tension or judgment, I mean, I don't I don't know where you're feeling that, how those people are positioned, whether they're just fans, are they writers, are they musicians? You know, I, I don't know. But I personally feel really happy that I experienced that. It's a very, very integral part of my identity. I totally relate as a young hippie, even though I was one of those 
that I write about that were too young to be real hippies, but I was infused with that because I was tuned in at a young age and was following everything that was going on. And, and I say that with great pride. I feel really lucky to have witnessed it. It was an extraordinary thing to have lived through. That said, people who come to it later and appreciate it, well, that's a wonderful thing. Building on that a little bit, the number of generations that love the Beatles and will love the Beatles. Candy, I know that in your current research, you were working on the idea of Beatles fandom as a religion. Can you talk about that a little bit? Please. It's still formulating in my head, although it is something I first started thinking about in the late 90s. And it was kind of from an almost like an ethnographic approach. If somebody came down from Mars and saw this behavior, it would align with behaviors that people do out of a religious belief. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are rituals, there are holidays, there are pilgrimages. But I think that, as I said, it's still coming together for me. And let me just say, too, that I in no way mean this in any disparaging of either religion or of Beatle fans. I mean, oh, I think- we're gonna we're gonna take this out of context, Candy, and we're gonna go burn all <laughs> copies of Beatleness. <laughs> you know, I, I think that the story itself, the serendipity, the quote unquote magic of it, lends itself to that kind of transcendent view, right? Um, it just does, and the unlikelihood of this whole thing ever happening. I mean, I'm sure you've heard it. I've heard it. Fans do kind of invoke certain terminology that one might use to describe religion. My interest, again, more as a sociologist, is really how it functions in people's lives, like how it enhances and enriches people's lives in a way that religion does for people who are believers. Every human society that has ever been known to existed has had both religion and music. Okay, so there's a reason for that. The part of it that really interests me the most is the community aspect of it, especially today where we hear so much about how people are disconnected and isolated, not only older people, but younger people too, that, you know, social isolation is a big issue and the health consequences of that. So I think that fandom can be looked at through that lens and it's a very positive thing. So when I say it's like a religion, there are certain things that religion does for people, right? And community is a very important one. Plus the fact that there's a coherent philosophy. There are a lot of aspects of it that bring to mind religion. Now, you know, there are people who perhaps see them as holy, as divine, as, you know, there's a continuum of fandom, right? You know, fans always say, oh, you see those people over there, they're really wacky, you know? So like there's this continuum of fandom and I'm not judging any of it, but I think that it's very interesting that people find value and meaning in the Beatles and their story and their work in so many different ways. So many people talk about, you know, they helped me through my, dysfun- you know, when I had a dysfunctional family, abuse, uh, I was suicidal, you know, all these things that happened to people over the course of life and how they felt that the Beatles were there to see them through that. That doesn't make Beatles fandom a religion, but it, they have a certain power for whatever reason to heal people in that way. Now, of 
course, then you have, you know, all the people in wheelchairs and crutches that, you know, lined up to see them when they came. So there's that whole aspect too, right? So mm-hmm. there's many different, which of course drove them crazy. They, John especially, couldn't stand that on the tours that that um, people, parents would bring disabled kids or, you know, kids with different kinds of problems, uh, injuries, illnesses, um, would put some in wheelchairs, would would want to meet them and just be touched by them, want to be near them. Um, and, you know, the Beatles didn't like this. They, you know, they, they didn't like any of this kind of stuff. They just thought it was ridiculous. Again, it makes sense because they had so much power in the culture at the time. Anybody who could um, elevate themselves to that level of fame and importance had to be special and have special power. I interviewed people who said that they were chosen by God to heal the earth. Timothy Leary said that. There are people who put the whole phenomenon in a kind of cosmic lens. This kind of illustrates the difference between a fandom and a fanatical fandom, because just like any religion, you have people who are you know, are a certain religion and they have the fanatics of that religion. But I think people would definitely equate their love of the Beatles to spirituality in some cases. And again, it also gets to their philosophy, you know, what I call their, their secular humanism, but it's very spiritual. So if one were to create a religion around the Beatles, like one could easily do that, right? I mean, everything is in place, the artifacts, the totems, you know, the holidays, the the rituals, the singing, you know, it, it has all the things that a religion has. That's really interesting in a society that relies less and less on religion and more and more actually on things like fandoms to get that code of life and finding your people. Well, finding the people, the tribe, the community, I mean, that's a really big part of it. Like you think about other big fandoms like Doctor Who or Star Trek or any of these other, or Harry Potter, the Beatles were real people. There are things about the Beatles fandom because it is based on real people who persisted against all odds to change the course of history. How many other people in the course of history can you say that about? And the other people that we would say that about were, in fact, religious figures for the most part, right? So, so, you know, it gets back to the scale of it, too. They had the rapt attention of a population for six years teaching things, explaining things, entertaining, bringing people together on a scale that really had never existed before in history. You know, we joke about John Lennon saying, taking out of context, saying, you know, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. If you consider people in the world were actually threatened by that, he was threatening Jesus Christ himself, and that was a big deal. That kind of says it all. It is pretty, it's an amazing thing. And so the other thing that makes it like a religion is thinking about it on this big scale is that it's a source of connection between people who may, who would otherwise perhaps not have known each other. It's like every mass is said the same way everywhere in the world. Every Friday night, Jews all over say the same prayer. In other words, there will always be these touchstones that are shared by people who partake of this in a way that really transcends time and space. I think that's one of the best things about the fest 
because if you look at those jam sessions, you know, you have people, very small children, first generation fans, you know, everybody knows the harmony. Everybody recognizes the type of instruments that people are bringing, the Ludwigs and the Hoffners and the Rickenbackers. And you just share this thing that at least for, you know, second and third generation fans, you don't have it at home. The fest is very interesting. You know, it's a manifestation of this community that, you know, people come together and celebrate the Beatles. It's a very nice thing. So this has been really, really enlightening. And I just really want to implore everybody listening to please check out Beatleness. It's such an amazing picture of fandom, like Erica said, at a micro level, just personal experiences that are so telling and so interesting between boys and girls, men and women of that time and, and continuing through till today, I think. Candy, what are you up to now? I know you're writing, obviously you're researching about the Beatles as a religion, but do you have any other new projects? I'm working on two articles now that will appear in some anthologies next year. I'm trying to kind of figure out what else I want to pursue in Beatle world. You know, I have a very strong interest in health, and I would love to combine my interest in health and wellness with the Beatles. Where can people find out more about Beatleness and where can they follow you? Beatleness.com is the book website, and there's excerpts, reviews, and a blog there. And I'm on Facebook, Beatleness, Beatleness book on Twitter. And on YouTube, there's a bunch of videos of me talking about the book and responding to questions and things. And as far as where to get the book, it's on Amazon. It's on you know anywhere that one buys books. It's also, if you don't want to buy it, you can probably get it from your library because it's got a very nice review in the library journal. And so most library systems have it. And I would actually recommend that people, if they're buying it, to buy the paperback. Why is that? As often happens with a book, there are some typos, there's a little corrections that need to be made. So the paperback doesn't have any mistakes, any errors, any typos. And it also has a discussion guide for classrooms or book groups. And the paperback also has some great reviews in it. One from, I believe it was Goldmine Magazine that, uh, I don't know, a certain someone may have written. Oh, who might that be? I don't know. The paperback has all the praise for Beatleness, among which Allison contributed. So I can take this opportunity to thank you. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. I That's one of my very, very favorite Beatles books. You are an early Beatleness uh, evangelist. I live Beatleness, baby. We both do. Well, thank you so much for being on Because the Beatles. This has been wonderful. This has been a great conversation. We appreciate it so much. Thanks, Candy. Thank you. Take care. And finally, this episode, our favorite Beatles-related thing of the week. So this week, I came across a copy of Mary McCartney's food book. Uh, She wrote it and she took all of the pictures in it. So it is uh, vegetarian recipes inspired by her mom, Linda, and accompanied by photos that she took of the food, which um, she's a professional photographer. So it's a beautiful book. And it also has a lot of McCartney family pictures in it. Oh, I didn't even know she did that. That's so cool. It's great. It has some pictures of her with Linda. She's a baby and Linda's holding her in one hand and a Dalmatian puppy in another hand. Oh, gosh. How could it get cuter? It couldn't. No, it can. It can. What's cuter than the dog and the baby is a picture that Mary took of a note that her mom left for her on the refrigerator one day. Hello, Mary. Welcome back. Hope you had a lovely evening and a good day at the beach. You're a wonderful girl and I love you. 
Note from my mom on oh the my fridge. God. It's so sweet. Linda. It's so oh sweet. My God. And she talks about the influence of her mother and what how she feeds her kids and how important vegetarian food is to her. And personally, I've been a vegetarian for many years, but I have never been able to connect with Linda McCartney's cookbooks because I am just not a good enough cook to master some of the things that she makes. Um, but this book is actually a bit more accessible. And the recipes in it look wonderful, whether you are a vegetarian or not. We'll post some pictures it's of so it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yes. It is sweet. And um, I, I love home goods because I can't believe I found it there. I know. That's so random. It's so amazing. I love home goods. Yeah, too. there was only one. It was discounted. It's got like a little rip in the cover. It doesn't matter. But <laughs> I, it was meant to be. It was. it was meant to be. It was. Okay, so what are you oh, obsessed with this week? Wonderful. So this is also a McCartney related thing. I swear to God, this is not a Paul McCartney podcast. Although, you know, to be fair, he's the most active right now. Um, But I was driving in my car last week. I was going to a concert and I was listening to terrestrial radio, old fashioned time USA. And as I was flipping through the channels, they were playing ever present past on the radio. And it was one of the greatest things that ever happened in my car. Cause I was so excited. Oh my God. Like, I could not believe it. It was on the radio. And I love Most Full. I have such great memories of that album. And I love that song. Um, and it just was a real sort of like high point in my day. Isn't it nice when you, you hear something like that so unexpectedly? It's just makes you feel great. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's such a random song, too. Yeah. Now I want to go listen to Memory Almost Full again. It's a great album. Good. So good. So thank you guys so much for listening to Because the Beatles. And be sure to subscribe and give us a rating so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yes, and follow us everywhere you can. Facebook, Twitter, and hopefully Instagram again really soon at BC the Get Beatles. Get your shit together, Instagram. Yes, and email us if you want to send us that way, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. We are available to talk about the Beatles 24-8. Yes, and we will see you next time on Because the Beatles. Bye-bye. Bye.